I'm going to start this uh, episode out with a uh, quote. Uh, it's by a gentleman by the name of Bertrand Russell. Uh, he's one of those people you could spend a ton of time reading about because he's just a downright interesting guy. Uh, you know you're in the uh, presence of an exceptional person when the first word in their Wikipedia you know, profile is a polymath. Uh, he's going to receive innumerable awards and recognitions in his career. There's going to be a Nobel Prize in literature, just a ton of things. Quote, you may reasonably expect a man to walk a tightrope for 10 minutes. It would be unreasonable to do so without accident for 200 years. End quote. Of course, uh, Russell is describing the state of affairs that existed in this period we know of as the Cold War, where you have these two mighty superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, and they seemed destined to come to blows. And you know, maybe under normal circumstances, they probably would. But within Russell's lifetime, the nature of the geopolitical landscape had changed dramatically. This tightrope walk is the precarious state of affairs where these two sides are going to seek to keep each other at bay, but not slip into a cataclysmic war. Uh, Rush, uh, Russell, however, is pessimistic. He sees this war as inevitable. You know, in his lifetime, uh, there have been two wars that have ravaged Europe and Asia. You have over 100 million people possibly died between World War I and World War II. Uh, Russell's a pacifist. He's going to get in a lot of trouble for protesting against uh, Britain's involvement in uh, the First World War. By the time you get to the Second World War, he is so opposed to fighting, uh, he even, and he got in a lot of trouble for this, uh, if the Germans come, we should treat them as guests. You know, they're, uh, they're going to show up, but uh, don't worry, it's not going to last. They'll be gone before you know it. What's the sense in, in fighting and causing needless death? Now, however, uh, in this, this time period, uh, following the Second World War, uh, things are different. Uh, he's going to propose that the United States actually launch, you call it a preventative war, against the Soviet Union. Um, He's going to use this rationale, quote, Russia is sure to learn how to make it. Uh, he's speaking of the atomic bomb, of course. I think Stalin has inherited Hitler's ambition for world dictatorship. One must expect a war between the USA and the USSR, which will begin with total destruction of London. I think the war will last 30 years and leave a world without civilized people, from which everything will have to be built afresh, a process taking, say... 500 years, there is one thing, and only one, which could save the world, and that is the thing which I should not dream of advocating. It is that America should make war on Russia in the next two years, and establish a world empire by means of the atomic bomb. End quote. Russell's writing from this brief period between 
1945 and 1949 when only one side had this new weapon, the atomic bomb, which could level an entire city in an instant. But he's smart enough to know that sooner or later, other people are going to get it. What if it falls into the wrong hands? If you just sit around on your hands and you wait, this Stalin guy, which in his mind is you know, just another Hitler, is going to get this weapon, and then he could use it against you. So he's advocating what in his mind would be the moral thing to do. That is a frightening, but at the same time, a fascinating argument. It shows the kind of moral quagmire that leaders in this period found themselves in. We have the luxury of knowing that this devastating future war would never take place. Well, at least it hasn't, not yet. In the time period we're talking about, people planned. They made detailed, elaborate plans about how to use this this new ultimate weapon. Um, And it wasn't used, thank God. But on several occasions, it got remarkably close. Now, if that had happened, because of what we know now about what these plans were, the world could have very easily slipped into the same oblivion that Russell so feared. I don't know what most of you do for a living, but by this point, if you live anywhere in the Western world, I'm going to assume that you've had the misfortune of uh, having to attend a company meeting, a staff meeting, maybe one of those dreadful multi-day conferences, uh, usually pretty lame. Uh, In fact, they can be downright horrible. Uh, But not always. Uh, I want to talk about a specific company meeting, or actually a a series of meetings that took place in uh, December of 1960 and uh, January of 1961. Uh, The location was a place called Offutt Air Force Base. Uh, It's about eight miles south of uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, The meeting is going to be attended by uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, For those of you who don't know, it's basically the guy that runs the Navy, the guy that runs the Army, uh, the Marines, and then this new service, the Air Force. Um, Of course, it's during this period, we know, is the the Cold War. Uh, That's going to run from 1945, or maybe earlier, as some people might say, uh, to the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. So during this time, uh, most people believed that at some point there would be a war uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, you know, of course, some people thought that maybe there'd be a peaceful way out, but you know, a lot of people, uh, not so much. So you have capitalism and you have communism, two diametrically opposed worldviews. Uh, both believe that the other side isn't just wrong, they're evil. And they're going to seek to get allies all over the world um, and do pretty much whatever it takes to win. Uh, this meeting was scary. 
uh, I would say that of all the conferences and boardrooms in history, this had to be one of the topmost frightening ever. Uh, maybe when Hitler gets together with his generals and talks about how the Holocaust is going to go down, maybe that might be scarier, but uh, maybe not. As you might expect, in a room full of generals, the topic is going to be about strategy, how to fight a war, but not just any war. This is about how to fight a nuclear war. The plan that they come up with is going to have a lot of moving parts, but the goal is something that even a child could have comprehended. Um, everything is supposed to take place in an allotted time frame just 24 hours. In that time, the United States was to deliver a blow so crippling that her adversaries would just be unable to continue fighting. They'd have to bow out of the war. I mean, if they were still alive. I think unless, you know, you live under a rock somewhere, uh, you probably have some familiarity with the, uh, the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. Uh, they killed a minimum of 200,000 people in their immediate aftermath. Uh, Hiroshima alone killed about 130,000 people. This attack, however, was to deliver the equivalent of 627,760 Hiroshimas, and it would all happen in a matter of hours. This was PSYOP 62. I'm your host, Stephen Eck, and this is Savage Continent. It was known as the Single Integrated Operational Plan. PSYOP was just an acronym. Uh, you might assume that each branch of the armed forces sort of work as a unified team, but you would be wrong. Uh, the different branches of the United States military often would disagree about strategies and tactics. Uh, if this occurred, uh, the president would be the final arbiter of what should be done. Um, Abraham Lincoln would communicate directly with his generals in the field via telegraph on a daily basis, uh, much to their aggravation. Uh, he could tell them what to do, even though he was totally a civilian. Um, this is because, according to the Constitution, the president is commander-in-chief. When it comes to military matters, um, he has almost absolute control. So in this scenario, uh, Eisenhower is really flexing his muscle on that account. The United States has been very fortunate in that it has not suffered any meaningful attack on its territory in its short history. Uh, you have 
a few brief incursions during the War of 1812, maybe a few skirmishes on the southern border during the next century. Uh, there was Pearl Harbor, of course, but remember that Hawaii was not a state at that time. Uh, Americans have grown used to a level of security that most people in the world have not known. Uh, you don't need to be a historian to know that large-scale invasions and occupations are the order of the day in most of the world through most of history. Uh, how many times have places like France, Germany, Russia, China, or any number of states in the Middle East or Africa been overrun through the centuries? Uh, many historians have asserted that it's been our geographical isolation that has led to our aggressively democratic form of government. Uh, let's face it, uh, liberal democracies aren't great when barbarians are at the gates. Sometimes you need an authoritarian leader who can lay down the law. Uh, the insecurity that Americans are feeling after World War II must have been unsettling in the extreme. Uh, wars, unless you count our civil war, uh, were always something that happened somewhere many thousands of miles away to people who spoke another language or worshipped another god. Uh, now, however, one could look up into the sky and realistically fear that just one single plane, just, just a dot in the sky, could drop an object so tiny it would be almost invisible. In a moment, however, your reality would be forever changed. The world that would instantly become a nightmarish charnel house to rival the worst scenes of the last war. Uh, this could happen at any time. Uh, if everyone in the government was doing their job... At least there would be a warning, though. Uh, planes could only travel so fast. You'd have maybe seven or eight hours. Uh, at least you could find a safe place to hide. Initially, it would have been very hard for the Soviet Union to drop an atomic bomb on the U.S. mainland. Uh, by 1949, they had successfully tested a fission bomb, but... The only plane they had to deliver one of these was literally a carbon copy, like down to the last nut and bolt of an American uh, B-29 that had sort of crash-landed in their territory. Uh, I mean, sure, they could hit U.S. allies in Europe, but flying to the, the U.S. was a one-way suicide mission for their pilots since they didn't have the fuel to return home if, and that's a big if, they could deliver their payload at all before being shot down by U.S. fighters. Uh, in time, the Soviets will build the bombers, or so it was believed, and later uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles would come into the game. So at this point, because of this new technology, instead of seven or eight hours, the Soviets could hit the U.S. in half an hour. By the time an ICBM showed up on the radar, it would be a mere 15 minutes from its target. Now, there would be no warning. For the first time, a major power could wipe the other from the surface of the Earth before the other side could get out of bed. I mean, think about that. I mean, how, 
How destabilizing could that be? I mean, before, if either the U.S. or the Soviet Union tried some sort of a sneak attack, the other side would know about it before anyone would get killed. Uh, I mean, sure, you might suffer a devastating attack. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe half the people in your country might die, but that would be foolish of them because you'd have enough time to get your planes in the air and retaliate. I mean, you're opponent would only have hours to savor victory before your bombers would hit his territory. Uh, no one would win. I mean, you know, all you need to do in that situation is make sure you have enough bombs and planes to hit back. That should keep the uh, idea out of the other guy's head. But now, I mean, you know, all bets are off. I mean, I have often wondered about these Western movies where you have like these two gunslingers staring at each other down some like dusty street. You know, invariably the bad guy always seems to go for his gun, but the good guy is so quick that on the draw that the bad guy, you know, he gets shot or at least the gun will get shot out of his hand. But I'm like, would that ever happen in real life? I seriously doubt it. Then there is the size and scale and just technical, I don't know, miracle of these things. I mean, they're really incredible when you think about it. They're mind-boggling. By the mid-1950s, your typical warhead on the nose cone of one of these missiles might be the equivalent of two, three, or four megatons, which is a million tons of TNT. I mean, just as a point of reference, all the bombs dropped in World War II put together would only equal 3.25 megatons. Uh, now you can accurately place all of that in a radius of about two miles, some poor guy's house on the other side of the world. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. If you were just 60 years old in this era, you remembered a time when two bicycle repairmen seemed to work a miracle by getting some rickety cloth and wood contraption off the ground for about 80 feet. Now, super refined petrochemicals mix with liquid oxygen and propel a 200,000 pound rocket clear out of the Earth's atmosphere in about five minutes. Uh, I, from there, there's a, a capsule containing a, a thermonuclear gift basket would travel to the other side of the planet in low Earth orbit, all the while guided by nothing but inertia. I mean, when the thing finally comes barreling down to Earth again, it's traveling at typically at speeds of like 20,000 miles an hour. I mean, nonetheless, there's a complex series of electrical impulses that are occurring within this thing at a predetermined altitude. Conventional explosives are, are, are going to cause atoms to split and then others to fuse. And then briefly, a miniature sun or a star would appear on the surface of the planet. Beautiful to behold unless you are anywhere near it. I mean, the, uh, the temptation to strike first in this, this time period, it must have been unreal. And even scarier, I mean, put yourself in the position of the leaders, the, like President of the United States, the, the, the Soviet General Secretary, 
I mean, you know where the other guy is for the most part. I mean, you know where he lives. If you hit first and then you plan on it, you could evacuate yourself and everyone important to you to some random place on the other side of the world that no one would ever dream of attacking. Uh, like some some cabin in the middle of nowhere, some deep abandoned mine. I mean, anywhere, anywhere. When you give your launch orders, you know with almost complete confidence that your adversary will have no time to get away. Uh, by the time you get to this point, uh, Moscow will have dozens of weapons trained on it. I mean, so will Washington. Eventually, once you start getting to like the late 60s or 70s, I mean, there are going to be no bunkers on Earth strong enough to withstand a direct hit from one of these types of weapons. I mean, your only hope is just to fly away. But I mean, can you get the chopper off the ground and at least 30, minute, 30 miles away that fast? Uh, yeah, and also direct a war in that time? In 15 minutes, I mean, direct a counter-strike? Uh, yeah, probably not possible. Uh, world leaders are, can be some pretty self-centered people. I, I think we can all agree on that. Um, you know, maybe one of these guys would be willing to sacrifice a million of their own people if it guaranteed their safety and those of their family. I mean, nuclear war? Sure, I don't know. It is bound to happen anyway. I mean, we'll strike the enemy. Uh, he'll get really demolished, but he won't have much back to hit with. Uh, at least it's happening on our terms. I mean, they'll get the worst of it. We might get hit back, but we'll win. Sure. Uh, coincidentally, at least when it came to conducting the war, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union were very similar. I mean, power flowed from the top. I mean, everything depended on the mentality of the president of the United States or the general secretary of the Soviet Union. If the wrong person found himself in the highest office, everyone might pay the price. And this person didn't need to be a bad person, per se. I mean, maybe... They might just be paranoid or insecure, or in the case of, you know, at least a couple presidents, uh, and I don't know how many of these general secretaries, but I mean, a lot of them had a, a penchant for like the bottle. Um, you know, what if, what if what if you catch a guy when he's drunk? I mean, how does that even work? Um, you know, they might style themselves as rational. And nobody wants to go through a devastating war. But if you run the numbers and you play out the war games and you come to the conclusion that attacking first is objectively your best option, you know, what do you do? Or what if you conclude that your opponent is also a rational person and attacking first is their best option? What if you believed by striking first, without any warning, you could catch the enemy totally unprepared? Maybe no one on your side will die at all. I mean, hell, you saved hundreds of millions of lives, potentially. 
and maybe history would see past your treachery. I mean, this is what's known as a, a first strike capability. Uh, it would be the dread of any war planner. And if the other guy had it, and they knew they had it, and well, you and everyone you know, you know might be dead meat. You can't let that happen. Uh, perhaps in the arms race, you know that you're behind and the other side is fixing to wipe you out at some opportune moment. You know, maybe that's what your intelligence says, right? You know, want to even the score? Hit first. Uh, maybe the other guy gets a blow in, but if you can knock out, you know, 80% of his missiles, bombers and subs before they can throw anything in your direction at all, all of a sudden the game's even. You know, if you're lucky, some of your missiles might take out him personally, or at least his leadership. You know, he can't organize his revenge, you know, in the middle of that kind of chaos. And then there's another one. Uh, hitting first has an advantage in a nuclear war that, you know, that this often gets overlooked. It's a phenomenon known as the electromagnetic pulse, or the EMP. You know, believe it or not, this is something that people still spend a lot of time thinking about today because it would be fairly easy to do and the people in the other country, they wouldn't even know what it is. Uh, check this out. Uh, if you detonate uh, maybe half a dozen warheads high over enemy territory, like, like the edge of space high, way out there, you can disable Every electronic device, the telephones, the radios, I mean, hell, even the light switches won't work anymore. It doesn't matter if the power comes back on. They're fried. You know, it's all gone. I mean, picture a nationwide power outage just minutes before communication becomes absolutely vital. I mean, your opponent is literally stuck in the dark ages right at the moment they can afford it the least. Uh... There was a U.S. nuclear test. It was called Starfish Prime, Central Pacific, 1962. A 1.4 megaton warhead. It was detonated uh, 250 miles over a place called Johnson Atoll. So the power grid was knocked out 900 miles away in Hawaii. All telephone services down. Um, imagine the confusion that would cause. And how would you... Uh, organize a counter-strike, you know, in that kind of conditions. These are all things you have to think about when studying the history of this period. You know, we're not getting into a ton of history this episode, but, you know, that's okay, because there's going to be at least another three or four other episodes where that's all we're going to talk about. This is a total mind game. No matter, it's no wonder both sides will employ think tanks with mathematicians and social scientists, historians, like the, even psychologists. I mean, as a leader, you have to take all of them seriously. I mean, let me put it this way. Fighting World War III is horrible. Nobody will dispute that. But losing it would be unimaginable. Before we go on, uh, just a disclaimer. Uh, in this episode, we're going to discuss the dynamics of this particular plan. Uh, we're going to talk about the people that orchestrated it. We'll also get into the science of how these weapons work and 
what effects a war like this would have on the population and even the environment. Now, if that's not your bag, I get it. Uh, maybe scrub ahead to the end or, or try out episode two. Uh, from there on, it's all history. Uh, however, I, I feel the need to do a deep dive on you know what these things are and what they mean, or none of the rest of this series is really going to make sense. However, I can't sugarcoat it. Uh, this is dark subject matter. Uh, but then maybe that's something uh, people need to hear now and then. Uh, keep in mind, this is all very real. This isn't some sci-fi post-apocalyptic fantasy. These things are as real now as they were back when Eisenhower was president. And they work. In fact, they probably work better now than they did back then. They do exactly what we have designed them to do. Uh, you know, society shouldn't be allowed to pretend they belong to another era. Anyways. All right, so back to our meeting. Uh, we have the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, there's some outside experts in attendance. Uh, I'll get into that a bit later. But we have our main figure, our presenter. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Thomas Power. Uh, Thomas Power is a war hero. Uh, he fought in World War II. He's got a distinguished flying cross, a silver star, two legions of merit, two air medals. Uh, he's flown over Nazi Germany. He's flown over Japan. Uh, this guy, you know, he's faced death again and again and again. Um, after bombing Tokyo and basically 65 other major Japanese cities, uh, he's actually you know the, the, these bomber pilots will come home from you know these these missions and the devastation is to the level over these japanese cities that they'll come home not only smelling like smoke but actually like they'll they'll talk about it how they smell like actual burning flesh he's the protege of another one of these super famous commanders uh, by the name of Curtis LeMay. Um, his, <laughs> Curtis LeMay's nickname is Iron Arse. Um, he was a legend in the Air Force. Uh, he flew over um, Europe, you know, Germany, World War II. He pioneered uh, something called the Box Formation. Um, you know, apparently, like when bombing targets in Nazi Germany, um, you know the, the different bombers in the groups would they they would very often you know stray, you know they would try to evade enemy you know fire uh, like enemy fighters and like flak from the ground, and he believed that if the bombers all stayed flying straight. And they went straight to their target, and then they, you know, kind of came straight back. They'd spend less time in the air, and because of that, they'd actually be less likely to get shot down. Um, and they'd be more likely to hit the target. So, LeMay, instead of kind of sitting on the ground and telling his uh, pilots sort of what to do, um, he would fly... In the front plane, that's the plane that's the most likely to get hit. 
You know, that's the kind of LeMay was. You know, he's not like one of these generals who just likes to like sit in the back and, you know, like the men typically don't like guys like that because they're not putting skin in the game. No, that's not LeMay at all. You know, he's not a coward. But at the same time, um, well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could talk about LeMay, but like, let me just give you some quotes and then, you know, make your own. Uh, judgments about them. Uh, quote, if you kill enough of them, they stop fighting. Uh, killing Japanese didn't bother me very much at the time. I supposed if we had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. Uh, another quote was, uh, there are no innocent civilians, so it doesn't bother me much to be killing innocent bystanders. And then uh, one last quote, if we maintain our faith in God, love of country, and superior global air power, the future looks good. End quote. So uh, that's Curtis LeMay. Okay, so power uh, works for LeMay. He runs something called uh, the Strategic Air Command. It is sort of a subsidiary of the Air Force. Uh, that basically Eisenhower wants in charge of all nuclear war planning. Uh, at the end of 1945, the U.S. only had two atomic bombs. By 1947, it'll have 10. Uh, the number is going to grow. Uh, until by 1960, there's going to be nearly 20,000 weapons in the U.S. arsenal. Um, originally they're supposed to be kept away from the military. Uh, it's sort of a lock and key situation. President Truman dictated where they went, uh, who got them, and most importantly, uh, if they were to be used. Uh, of course, President Truman, Harry Truman, he is the president that's sort of responsible for dropping the atomic bomb on Japan. Uh, Truman is not a military man. Uh, by any means, he had just a few months of experience, uh, kind of being a low-level commander in World War I, but for the most part, all this stuff is sort of kind of beyond him. He understands that this new weapon is immensely powerful, and whoever has it, you know, you can really dictate terms, but he doesn't trust his generals to sort of use it kind of on their own terms. Uh, it's just, for him, it's a new kind of weapon. It's not a bigger weapon. It's just something completely different. So President Truman is going to dictate where the bombs went, uh, who gets them, and, you know, most importantly, if and how they're going to be used. Um, the last part, of course, never really went away, but only technically. Um, if there is an attack and the president is somehow out of reach, then commanders were and still are um, authorized to use any weapons in uh, their possession. Um, and, you know, by this point, you have um, monster ICBMs uh, and gravity bombs as big as 25 megatons all the way down to like these tiny atomic artillery shells. Uh, there's even a, a bazooka that launch, launches a, a half-ton kiloton warhead. It's called the Davy Crockett. Um, 
and just again a point of reference um a kiloton uh that is the equivalent of a thousand tons of dynamite uh the bomb that was dropped on hiroshima that's typically seen as a yardstick that's 12.5 kilotons uh when i say megaton that's a million tons of tnt uh there are all sorts of weapons by the time you get to the psyop you have atomic torpedoes there are atomic depth charges there are atomic uh surface to air missiles there are atomic air to ground missiles um there are even atomic landmines uh that you know apparently they were set off by timers that that would be a really nasty surprise you know when you walk into town um wow um so all the services uh they have these weapons and they all have their own ideas about how to use them um in the event of war the navy uh wanted to put it's a submarine launch and carrier launched missiles in one place and then the army uh they might want to put its battlefield nuke somewhere else and then the air force uh they have their own priorities and um when there were a few dozen warheads and this was the case very early on um it wasn't such a big deal uh but when you have that much material again once you get up to like you know over 20,000 of these things um you know if a war starts unexpectedly it could be an absolutely huge mess uh you might have a bunch of targets getting hit way too many times other targets might get totally overlooked um and what if and this was sort of seen as the likely scenario you know your call to action you know you only have minutes to respond um there is no time to sit and strategize uh you need a plan that you can kick into gear almost instantaneously no time to think every single person involved needs to know exactly what they have to do no dithering no questioning and no moral reasoning so power um the commander-in-chief of strategic air command and his superior curtis lemay um he's the basically the vice commander-in-chief of the air force they believe that war and all future wars uh should be brief decisive and exceedingly violent uh if you if you ask for anything less that just sort of prolongs all of the suffering and death um and in a way it sort of makes sense um you know if if you are a middle-aged military man in this time period just i mean look at you know the the large conflicts that you've experienced look at world war 1 world war 2 in you know your eyes it's the fact that these wars just go on and on and on for years and years and every single day you know thousands of people are dying and it just goes and goes and goes and goes in their opinion if you limit all of that violence and suffering to something that's very very short I mean, perhaps that's the most humanitarian thing to do. I mean, you've had these two wars that have absolutely devastated 
two successive generations of, I mean, not just, you know, Europeans, but I mean, people all over the world. Um, what if you could eliminate all of that by such an amazing show of force that no opposing power would mess with you? Or if they did, you could just wallop them so hard, it would be over before anyone knew it. I mean, this would be, you know, the way to do it. Um, I mean, if you look back in human history, uh, it's the, the long wars that have been the most costly. Uh, that's the idea behind the PSYOP. Uh, so this plan is basically created uh, by 186 civil and military personnel. They're going to work nonstop for four months. It's going to be completed uh, on December 14th, 1960. And the goal was if nuclear war um, was what was called for, this would be the response of the military. So everything according to this plan had to be pre programmed. Fred Kaplan, um, probably the. You know, foremost historian in uh, this aspect of the Cold War, uh, writes this in uh, his book, uh, Wizards of Armageddon. SAC, or its PSYOP incarnation, the uh, Joint Strategic Targeting Plan, or the JSTPS, finished the PSYOP on December 14, 1960, just as Eisenhower had ordered it. It was labeled PSYOP-62 meaning that it was to go into effect in the fiscal year 1962, which would begin June 1961. It called for shooting off, as quickly as possible, the entire portion of the U.S. strategic nuclear force that was on alert. 1,459 nuclear bombs, ranging from 10 kilotons to 23 megatons, totaling 2,164 megatons in all against 654 targets, military and urban industrial, simultaneously in accordance with SAC's optimum mix strategy in the USSR, Red China, and Eastern Europe. China was targeted because it was part of the, quote, Sino-Soviet bloc. Uh, Eastern Europe, because it hosted hundreds of Soviet air defense, radar, and missile sites, which had to be, uh, quote, taken out so that SAC bombers could fly safely through the corridors leading to the Russian heartland, uh, the JSTPS calculated that the U.S. alert force alone could kill 175 million Russians and Chinese. Now, this is the big one. If the entire force were launched, and this is what would be called for if the U.S. fired a preemptive first strike, the attack would involve 3,423 nuclear weapons, totaling 7,847 megatons. It would kill 285 million Russians and Chinese and severely injure 40 million more. None of these figures included the millions of casualties in Eastern Europe or the fallout victims in the free world. End quote. This is an immense amount of firepower. It is so absolutely incredible that 
no CGI movie could ever really do it proper justice. Okay, so let's break down some terminology. Uh, as I mentioned before, a kiloton is the equivalent of 1,000 tons of TNT or dynamite. Uh, the terms are, I think, interchangeable, but let's not you know, get into semantics. A megaton is a thousand kilotons or a million tons of TNT. Uh, the bomb, just point of reference, that destroyed Hiroshima was 12.5 kilotons. So what does that even look like? Uh, a stick of dynamite, as I, uh, my research has shown, I, I spent actually a whole day on this. It took a while. Uh, a stick of dynamite is eight ounces. Uh, it is about eight inches long and 1.25 inches in diameter. A kiloton of dynamite would be four million of these sticks. A megaton would be four billion. Uh, you take a kiloton of dynamite, uh, the sticks of dynamite, you would make it, you could make a cube uh, 227 feet high and 227 feet wide. So picture a giant cube of dynamite. That That is a 20-story cube of dynamite. A megaton would be a cube 2,270 feet high and 2,270 feet wide. Um, it's the highest building in the United States, I believe, is the Freedom Tower in New York. That is uh, 1,776 feet high. Of course, it's not nearly that wide. So picture, you know, that much TNT or dynamite stacked up in a giant cube. That is what a megaton would be. All right, so uh, nuclear bombs, uh, as you might know, have two categories. There's fission and fusion. A fission bomb, uh, like the one that uh, dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it derives its power from slamming together uh, elements like uranium and plutonium uh, with so much force that the atoms will split and become lighter elements like krypton and barium. During this process, uh, lighter elements are created that contain fewer combined neutrons than the original material that is sort of, you know, used for this fission. So the leftover neutrons are going to fly off with incredible force, and then they in turn are going to hit other uranium or plutonium atoms, and then the process sort of repeats itself over and over and over again. So you're kind of creating this sort of this this chain reaction that just sort of runs away. Um, now it's tricky because in order to make this all happen, you have to use conventional explosives to kind of trigger this car crash of atoms. But the force of that explosion with, you know, your conventional explosives might blow your bomb apart before the, it's called the critical mass can occur. So uh, fission bombs are very powerful because the mass of the material after the explosion happens is actually slightly less than the mass beforehand. 
So what's happening is um, mass is being converted directly into energy. So the, it has to do with uh, you know Einstein's famous equation uh, E equals M C squared. Um, you know, after the uh, the Hiroshima you know bomb is detonated, uh, Truman gets on TV and he talks about how. Uh, that we've harnessed uh, the force by which the sun derives its power. Um, that's not quite true. Uh, the sun is going to utilize a different process that's called fusion. The thing about uh, the fission bombs is that you're sort of limited by the amount of fissile material that you have at hand. So the amount of uranium or plutonium, but the problem with these bombs is that they're extremely heavy and not very efficient. Uh, so your Hiroshima bomb, you know, it's like 10,000 pounds, but you know, the amount of like mass that's being converted into energy, it's like less than, I mean, the total mass is like less than half a penny. Um, so there's going to be another kind of bomb uh, that's going to be something called a fusion bomb. It's uh, better known as a hydrogen bomb. Uh, let's just put it this way. The largest fission bomb, so a plutonium or uranium bomb that was ever detonated was 800 kilotons. Uh, that's a big bomb, but compared to one of these fusion bombs or hydrogen bombs, it's like a firecracker. So a fusion bomb or a hydrogen bomb, uh, is actually two bombs in one. So at the top of your hydrogen bomb, uh, you have your typical fission bomb. Uh, usually it is a uranium or plutonium core. It's surrounded by high explosives uh, needed to bring uh, it to the critical mass that it needs. Um, then you have this other part of the bomb, you know, at the bottom, where you have a mixture of two isotopes of hydrogen, uh, deuterium and tritium. Uh, what, what is an isotope? An isotope is basically, it's a variation of an element in which, uh, you know, you have the same amount of protons, but, you know, you have a different number of neutrons. So... The two isotopes of uh, hydrogen involved in this, you know, uh, the one has one neutron and then the other one has two. And the goal in your fusion bomb is to get these two isotopes of hydrogen to combine and become helium. Now, since helium, uh, you know, normally is going to have, you know, two protons and two neutrons, that's going to leave one extra neutrons. Neutrons. So you're going to take your uh, deuterium and tritium. You're, you're going to smash them together. They're going to fuse to make a new element, and that extra neutron is going to blast off with so much force that you know, it, basically, it, it's going to leave fission, which is like a big cumbersome process in the dust. But then again you know, there's fission and fusion and they're kind of going back and forth. And again, it's like way too complicated for me to like really explain. I've seen so many different, you know, videos and I've read so much about this and I'm still a little bit in the dark, but you know, it's, it's something. Um, again, it's tricky because if the shockwaves from not only the original, uh, 
you know, conventional explosives, but also your original fission reaction hit the deuterium and tritium first, then yes, you'll get the original fission detonation, but you'll miss out on the real thing that you're after. And I know, you know, I'm oversimplifying it, but, you know, the gamma rays from the original explosion, um, according to the way that they're going to build these hydrogen bombs, are going to bounce off a, a beryllium casing and then back into the fuel of the bomb, the hydrogen isotopes. Everything inside is also sort of cased, the, the two components of the bombs, like, you know, your 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 original you know your uh, uranium or plutonium pit and then the other part which is the uh the hydrogen isotopes that they're all going to be separated and encased in styrofoam yes styrofoam uh this is important because the styrofoam is going to turn into a plasma that is hot enough to create the temperatures needed to force the isotopes together uh normally uh, protons are going to have such a powerful positive charge that they won't come within a country mile of each other. But if you heat them to many, many tens of millions of degrees, um, then all bets are off. And then they're willing to come together and then thus create other elements. This is, of course, what happens at the center of our sun. This is how mass in the universe is turned into pure energy. So a hydrogen bomb is basically taking a little piece of the sun and placing it very briefly on the earth, the surface of the earth. And then, you know, what's insane is the minuscule size of matter that is actually turned into energy in these detonations. You know, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, you have like, it's a half a penny of matter is turned into energy in the Hiroshima bomb. But even the largest bomb ever created, the Tsar Bomba, which is going to be something like, I don't know, 4,000 times as big as the Hiroshima bomb. It's only going to turn five pounds of matter into energy. And then you know, of course, I, I am, I haven't mentioned this before, but, you know, I'm a high school teacher, I teach history, and uh, when I start, uh, when I teach about, you know, how, like, these, these, these weapons work, I mention to my students that uh, if their body weight, and I'll pick, like, the, the, the smallest, like, girl in the class, um, if, if, you know, her body weight were to be turned into pure energy, um, you, know, you could wipe out most life on Earth at least in the northern hemisphere, just through that reaction by itself. If you were to take all of the megatonnage PSYOP-62 envisioned dropping in a matter of hours, and if you were to convert that all into dynamite sticks or TNT sticks and put it in one place, and you created a cube with all of that material, uh, the cube would be 8.83 miles high and wide, or 4,646,640 uh, feet. Uh, it would be three miles higher than Mount Everest and about a mile higher than the cruising altitude of 737. 
course, what does all that mean? What does it do? So Lynn Eden, uh, another really great historian, is going to write in her book, uh, World on Fire. Um, she's going to describe what a single relatively small bomb of 300 kilotons would do if it were detonated over, uh, she uses the Pentagon in uh, Washington, D.C. Quote, Upon detonation of a 300 kiloton nuclear bomb, an extraordinary amount of energy would be released in an instant, about 300 trillion calories within about a millionth of a second. Initially, nearly all of this energy would be in the form of fast-recoiling nuclear matter, which would be released into the surrounding environment, while a chemical explosion of uh, comparable yield would release almost all of this explosive power in the form of powerful expanding shockwave, more than 95% of the energy initially released in a nuclear explosion is in the form of intense light. Since this intense light is a very short wavelength uh, in the soft X-ray range, it would be efficiently absorbed by the air immediately surrounding the weapon, superheating the air to very high temperatures and creating an immense ball of heat, commonly called a fireball. Because the early fireball would be so hot, it would expand rapidly. Although most of the air originally occupied within the volume and around the fireball would be compressed into a thin shell of superheated, glowing high-pressure gas. This shell of gas would compress the surrounding air, forming a steeply fronted luminous shockwave of enormous extent and power. In air, shockwaves are generally referred to as blast waves. Shockwaves also occur in water and earth. By the time the fireball approached its maximum size, it would be more than a mile in diameter. It would very briefly produce temperatures at its center of over 200 million degrees Fahrenheit and 100 million degrees Celsius, about four to five times the temperature at the center of the sun. This enormous release of light and heat would create an environment of almost unimaginable lethality. Vast amounts of thermal energy would ignite extensive fires over urban and suburban areas. In addition, the extreme compression of air would quickly cause an intense blast wave of high-speed winds. This blast wave and the winds would crush many structures and tear them apart. The blast wave would also boost the incidence and rate of fire spread by exposing ignitable surfaces, releasing flammable materials, and dispersing burning materials throughout the environment, end quote. You see, that's just the beginning. It's the opening, literally seconds of the attack. Uh, what transpires in the minutes and hours afterwards is totally unaccounted for when we use terms like megaton and kiloton. Uh, that is all blast. Um, the light and the heat are what make a nuclear weapon a nuclear weapon. Um, usually when a fire occurs, uh, it starts in a single place, and it spreads uh, wherever it can find new fuel. Uh, when a fire burns through an area, and it, it sort of moves on. Uh, this is what's called a line fire. Uh, a nuclear fire is another animal entirely. Um, you've probably seen a line fire. Uh, if you've 
ever seen if there's a forest fire or something you know and you'll you'll get those aerial shots where a plane flies over and you know you can see the fire kind of like working like one in one direction right and it kind of moves from one area to the next but it it literally is working in a line and this is how fire usually works um a nuclear fire is another animal entirely uh within seconds things just spontaneously combust i mean everything everywhere at one time um what happens is the blast will break everything apart it'll expose everything that might be flammable and then the next step um, all that material burns, and so much of it burns at once that it develops into something only witnessed several times in human history. Um, I mean, who knows? You know, when when the the meteor hits like sixty five million years ago, maybe the the dinosaurs like saw a mass fire, but the only times humans have seen it uh, has been in Hamburg uh dresden tokyo and then maybe a couple other world war ii cities um it's it's just something that's so rare that chances are uh none of you have actually seen this happen and then um eden goes on to describe sort of how uh the physics of this work quote Within tens of minutes after the cataclysmic events associated with the detonation, a mass of buoyantly rising fire-heated air would signal the start of a second and distinctly different event, the development of a mass fire of gigantic scale and ferocity. This fire would quickly increase in intensity. In a fraction of an hour, it would generate ground winds of hurricane force with average air temperatures well above the boiling point of water. 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius. This would produce a lethal environment over a vast contiguous area. The character of mass fires results from the simultaneous combustion of a large area containing a fuel load typical of a city or suburb. The Pentagon is located near a relatively wide river, but fires would start simultaneously in large areas on both sides of the river. On the Washington side of the river opposite the Pentagon, an area of roughly 8 to 12 square miles contains a combustible high-fuel-loading structures that would be consumed in a mass fire following the detonation. This fire alone would generate ferocious winds and air temperatures. The even larger area burning on the Pentagon side would also be consumed in a mass fire. The direction of the fire winds in regions near the river would be modified by the river, but the overall wind pattern from these two huge and nearly contiguous fire zones would be similar to that of a single huge fire and will be treated as a single mass fire. The first indicator of a mass fire would be the strangely shifting ground winds of growing intensity in the targeted area. These winds are entirely different from and unrelated to the earlier blast wave winds that exert drag pressure on structures. These fire winds would be caused by the inrush of air flowing following the rise of a vast column of heated air from the fires within the many tens of square miles of the targeted area, much like a gigantic bonfire. 
as this heated air rose from the fire zone, its movement would create a low-pressure region below it near the ground. This would cause cooler air from the surrounding ground regions to be drawn into the fire zone as ground winds. These winds would fan the fires, causing them to increase in intensity and spread, generating still higher volumes of hot rising air, which would in turn cause higher speed ground winds of hurricane force. Such inrushing winds would drive the flames from combusting buildings, usually near vertical, horizontally toward the ground, filling city streets with hot flames and combusting firebrands breaking in doors and windows, and causing the fire to jump hundreds of feet to engulf anything that was not yet combusting violently. These extraordinary winds, a physical consequence of the rise of heated air over vast areas of ground surface, would transform the targeted area into a huge hurricane of fire. Within tens of minutes, the entire area, approximately 40 to 65 square miles, everything within 3.5 or 4.6 miles of the Pentagon would be engulfed in a mass fire. The fire would extinguish all life and destroy almost everything else. End quote. So, unfortunately, uh, since these bombs were almost always tested in secluded open areas, uh, things like light, heat, and blast uh, were very easy to observe and record with sensors. Uh, these tests all had a purpose. Uh, they weren't done for fun, although, you know, we tend to think that they were, you know, like these scientists weren't just a bunch of kids like setting off firecrackers. Um, they recorded a lot of valuable data that still means a lot to us today. Um, however, since uh, the these detonations weren't, occurring in an urban area there are so many variables that just could not be properly recorded and fire is just one of those variables you know when when you detonate like a nuclear device and it happens in the middle of the desert i mean you can set up like fake houses or trees or whatever the heck and just record the data but you're not really going to know what happens if you have you know, giant city made of different material, you know, if it's a city that's made out of wood or, you know, one that's made mostly of brick. I mean, what really happens? Um, so what happens is that a lot of this, you know, hypothetical data was just sort of ignored. Um, that's the fires. Uh, then there's this other variable that uh, people were not totally cognizant of in the beginning, but it'll be a big deal later on. It's something called fallout. So from the very beginning, scientists knew that physical materials exposed to the direct effects from these weapons uh, became toxic to be around. Um, they become radioactive. Uh, the nucleus of uh, the atoms, uh, they want to basically give up further energy. That's what it means when something becomes radioactive. Uh, this will happen in the form of gamma rays or alpha and beta particles. This is, this is very wonky, so I don't want to get too far into it, but just know that everything that gets sucked up into that iconic mushroom cloud is pretty much cursed. You know, once that material falls to Earth, 
is extremely dangerous to life. Now, most of this radioactivity goes away rapidly, but there are certain isotopes that are created in this, you know, basically this nuclear phenomenon that stick around for a long time, uh, such as strontium-90 or cesium-135. Uh, they can stick around for decades. Uh, believe it or not, you probably have trace amounts of them in your body right now from nuclear tests that occurred in the 50s and 60s. Uh, this fallout, can, it can travel for thousands of miles. Um, usually, it falls to Earth within several hours after detonation but some of it can remain in the stratosphere for years. Um, when this became common knowledge, um, after this one nuclear test, it's called the Castle Bravo test. It's in 1954 in the South Pacific. There was a mania for what, were, uh, what, were, what would be called fallout shelters. Uh, basically what happens is this. Uh, there is a nuclear test. It was supposed to have a yield of between maybe 5 and 10 megatons. It ends up coming in at 15 megatons. It's huge. So the military had basically cordoned off an area around where this detonation happened, but it wasn't nearly big enough. So there were all these people and islands and and in, in in one case a ship you know and a very unfortunate fisting vessel called the uh, the lucky dragon um that was exposed to all of this you know radioactive fallout and the people got to observe you know what happens if you know your this stuff you know is in your vicinity um anyway so there's this idea that if a nuclear war happens, you know, you have your blast and your heat and your fire, but then there's this whole other different variable that's going to affect giant swaths of people and territory that might not be affected by, like, you know, the actual, you know, the fireball and the blast and all that sort of stuff. So, um, these fallout shelters, and you've probably seen them, although I'm not sure most people know uh, what they're looking at when they see one of these signs. Um, if you live in a major city, an older city especially, uh, a lot of times you'll see a little sign on the side of a building, and it'll be these uh, sort of three upside-down triangles. Uh, that is a sign for a fallout shelter. Um, now, a fallout shelter is often confused with a bomb shelter. It's not a bomb shelter. Uh, a fallout shelter is not going to protect you from the heat, the blast, the fire, or any of the, you know, the obvious effects of a nuclear weapon. Uh, basically, what they are is they're safe places that are designed to keep people um, away from I guess you would call it like this toxic snow that's going to be falling outside. The first hours after it starts are typically the most deadly. Now, most of the radioactivity uh, dissipates quickly, but it really wouldn't be safe to be outside for at least a week 
maybe two. Uh, you know, just being inside a, a normal building wouldn't be enough to keep you safe. Uh, gamma rays uh, would go right through most walls. Um, that, you know, that alone could make you sick in a day or two. Um, you know, you might have uh, an agonizing, you know, death from radiation, uh, you know, in, in a week. Radiation sickness is no joke. Uh, Google it up. Uh, it's pretty horrible. Uh, there was a recent, um, I don't know if you've seen Chernobyl. It was a great HBO documentary where, you know, they, they, they showed some of the, the, the firemen that went in to, like, put out the, uh, the fire, you know, at the, the, the Chernobyl disaster in uh, the 1980s. Um, it's horrible. You might have millions of people that would be subjected to, like, this sort of thing, you know, in the event of a nuclear attack. Um, what is going to protect you from that? It's fairly simple. Um, you just need to have several inches of lead, uh, maybe a foot or two of concrete, um, or even several feet of soil. That'll do a great job as well. Um, since these rays travel in straight lines, um, just being below ground or with a concrete roof on top of you, that'll do the trick. So uh, these fallout shelters are going to pop up all over North America, Europe, Asia. Um, governments are going to stock these uh, at least the public fallout shelters with enough food and water to keep a specified number of people alive uh, for this sort of period of time. Um, you know, again, you can visit some of these fallout shelters. Um, yeah. Apparently, I, I read that in Beijing, 5% uh, of the population because there's this housing shortage, still lives in these, like, underground shelters. Um, anyway, I can't verify that, but uh, apparently in New York City, there were 18,000 public fallout shelters. Uh, you know, there would be uh, an official from the government that would come, and they would sort of designate this or that space as, like, a public shelter, but then they would stock these little areas with um, food and water and uh, first aid supplies. Uh, typically, they were there was about one thousand calories uh, per person per day. So your typical fallout shelter, at least in the United States, uh, would have a, a number you know assigned to it, like. This can keep 50 people or 100 people or, you know, however many. Uh, they, I, I think it was the company that became Keebler is going to make these little, they would call them survival biscuits. They'd be like saltine crackers. Um, <laughs> it's, it's grim. Uh, were you to go in one of these shelters in a, uh, a war situation, uh, you'd basically be munching on crackers for two weeks. Uh, there would be these 50-gallon drums full of water, and then once that water was used up, uh, they would be used as a commode. Again, you'd be, you know, stuck in this little space. But, you know, again, 
if you were there during that little critical period after the attack, you know, you could, you know, sort of theoretically survive. Now, of course, if you were in a target area, just going into a fallout shelter is not going to be much protection because, you know, the size of these weapons is pretty much going to, you know, doom you anyway, but that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> so at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, uh, can this get any worse? Oh no, uh, <laughs> it gets much darker. Uh, there is the climate. Um, this is not something that was known uh, during the time period that we're talking about right now. Um, it's really only going to be apparent uh, during the 1980s with the whole uh, nuclear winter hypothesis. Uh, but all of the dust from the explosions, uh, especially the fires that would follow, it's going to be thrown high up into the atmosphere. And then during this uh, period after the attack, it's basically going to blot out the sun. Uh, it's going to cause you know, dramatic crop failures and you know, it's going to affect the global food supply. So I'm going to quote um, a really important uh, issue of the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, from April 1984. Uh, quote, The possible climactic and biological effects of a nuclear war were long neglected under the assumption that they were trivial compared to the terrible immediate impacts on human populations. The World Health Organization recently estimated that a large-scale exchange might kill 1.1 billion people outright and seriously injure an equal number. Nearly half the 1984 human population thus would be immediate casualties of a nuclear war, regardless of any environmental effects. But this calamity would be only the beginning. Carl Sagan presented the uh, TTAPS study, named for co-authors R.P. Turco, O.P. Toon, T.P. Ackerman, and J.P. Pollock, and C. Sagan, um, on the atmospheric consequences of a nuclear war. Across a variety of scenarios, uh, the TTAPS simulations produced uh, remarkably consistent results. In a nuclear war involving both urban and military targets, thousands of detonations would inject tremendous quantities of both dust and soot into the atmosphere of the Northern Hemisphere, where the majority of the targets are located. The vast fires would be ignited by attacks on cities, uh, were described by panelist Richard Turco of the TAPS team. World War II firestorms in German cities, he warned, uh, presage the fierceness of the nuclear fires that might occur in modern cities, except that nuclear fires would be unprecedented in scale and much more intense, dwarfing any of the World War II conflagrations. Within one or two weeks, the individual plumes of dust and soot would coalesce in an enormous dark cloud shrouding most of the northern hemisphere, particularly the mid-latitude belt, encompassing most of the United States, Canada, the Soviet Union, Europe, China, and Japan. Beneath the spreading clouds, very little sunlight. In the worst cases, as little as a tenth of 1% of the normal light level averaged over the hemisphere 
could reach the surface. Even relatively limited wars could reduce light intensities by 95% or more. Clouds of dust alone would emit some light because dust particles reflect and scatter much of the light that strikes them, and some would reach the surface. Smoke clouds, by contrast, would absorb uh, most of the solar radiation striking them, very effectively blocking out sunlight as long as they persisted. End quote. So I think you can gather uh, the upshot of this study is that all of the, the soot and the smoke thrown into the atmosphere is going to blot out the sun, and that is going to result in a dramatic uh, decrease in temperature. Um, let me just pick up a couple of uh, pages down. Um, uh, quote, how far temperatures fell and how long they remained uh, significantly below normal would depend on the details of the conflicts and the actual values of the uncertain physical parameters. Obviously, the largest numbers of weapons uh, would produce the worst effects. The 10,000 megaton severe scenario could plunge average surface continental temperatures in the northern and mid-latitudes to around minus 50 degrees centigrade and keep them below freezing for a year or longer. Yet, surprisingly, harsh and lasting effects would be generated by even relatively modest exchanges. The baseline scenario, 5,000 megatons, could drop average continental temperatures in the northern hemisphere to around minus 23 degrees centigrade. Shockingly, even 100 megatons detonated on cities alone could produce sufficient smoke to blacken skies and chill continental areas to below minus 20 degrees centigrade, with recovery taking over three months. End quote. Now that is downright apocalyptic. Uh... It just, you're in this world where even at high noon, middle of the afternoon, it's almost like this sort of weird twilight effect where, you know, maybe once in a while you might get a teeny glimpse of the sun, but almost none of that light is really reaching the surface. Uh, When night proper arrives, there is no moon, no stars. Uh, Of course, since everything's been destroyed, there are no streetlights or anything. Uh, It would be like the world is a giant cave, and there is absolutely no light whatsoever. Uh, That kind of leads into the next, really, probably the worst uh, effect of a large-scale nuclear exchange would be the crop failure. Uh, In the aftermath of an attack like this, it would be almost total. Now, keep in mind that the world uh, right now has only about a one to two month supply of food. Uh, If that gets cut for whatever reason, uh, people are going to starve. And, you know, again, once you get to like uh, six weeks, two months... Uh, it's just a matter of time, uh, especially if you live in an area where uh, you're dependent on food imports. And keep in mind, all transportation is going to be shut down. There's going to be major uh, fuel shortages to boot. Uh, you know, people are going to start starving there 
very, very quickly. Uh, let's pick up uh, the article uh, two pages down. Quote, uh, The reduction of sunlight by more than 95% for several weeks would represent a severe assault on green plants, the foundation of all significant ecosystems. Virtually all animals, including human beings, are directly or indirectly dependent on the energy green plants capture from sunlight in the process of photosynthesis. Panelist John Berry, a plant ecologist at the Carnegie Institute, reminded the audience that photosynthesis is the major uh, energy input of the biosphere, the driving force for the operation of natural and agricultural ecosystems. For most plants, photosynthetic activity is proportional to the amount of light they receive, and 15% or more of the energy fixed is needed to maintain the life processes. If light falls below that point, plants begin to consume themselves, and animals also consume them. A severe loss of light thus means loss of biomass. Under the smoke-shrouded skies of a nuclear winter for several weeks, uh, light intensities would be too low to permit growth in most plants. The 10,000 megaton severe exchange case could turn midday into the equivalent of a moonlit night for many weeks, too dark for photosynthesis at all, and a complete recovery of pre-war light levels would take more than a year. The darkness, drastic in itself, would be accompanied by plummeting continental temperatures. Growing plants are as sensitive to temperatures as they are to light intensities. And even Quite small changes can make significant differences. A reduction in the average temperatures of 1 degree centigrade at critical times can reduce crop yields by as much as 10%, for example. Uh, temperatures far below freezing during the growing season would annihilate most annual plants, including uh, most crops, and kill or severely damage even the hardiest perennials. Even normally cold-tolerant species, such as winter wheat and deciduous trees, need time to accumulate, uh, to acclimate to winter cold. Uh, the more sensitive plants, including many important crops, could be seriously harmed by low temperatures that only approach freezing during the growing season. Moreover, the effects of cold and darkness uh, would interact uh, synergistically, each intensifying the other. Cold, damaged plants need abundant sunlight to repair the damage and the rate of photosynthesis is retarded by low temperatures. Plants in the tropics and subtropics are particularly vulnerable. If the climactic effects spread southwards, uh, both crops and natural vegetation in those regions would be devastated. End quote. Now, in the 37 years uh, since this hypothesis went public, a lot of scientists have come out with different models that kind of uh, brings down uh, the effects of a large-scale nuclear war. But other scientists say, no, this would definitely happen. Um, interestingly enough, um, what really sparked this idea was the discovery of the asteroid that uh, hit the Earth 65 million years ago and, and, and killed off you know, the dinosaurs. And uh, it was basically the same science is taken and it's sort of utilized on this, uh, this scenario where you have a large nuclear exchange and it just, just devastates the environment. Um, I read somewhere uh, where a scientist, uh, 
hypothesize that if there was a small exchange, not nothing like the 10,000 megatons, but even a two or 3,000 megaton exchange uh, today, you could expect that 97% of people, uh, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, would die. Um, even if there was a very small exchange, say India and Pakistan were to go at it, and you would get like a one or 200 megaton exchange just between those two countries, the world's climate would be affected enough that you might see a 10% loss in overall population, maybe 20%, just because of all the crop failures in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's something that is uh, definitely still out there and to be wary of. But uh, back to our story, uh, even if Thomas Powers' uh, 7,847 megaton assault on the Sino-Soviet bloc went off completely without a hitch, and the other side didn't even get a single shot in, you know, knowing what we know now, just about the, the climate alone, uh, you know, the U.S. would win, but it would be a very short-term win. Within weeks, we would be feeling the effect of, you know, our victory in a sense. Now, uh, remember how I mentioned how the different uh, services uh, didn't always work together and that... Uh, you know, often the president would have to step in uh, and sort of fix any sort of dispute, uh, arbitrate between the sides. Uh, this time is no different. So Dwight Eisenhower, uh, unlike his uh, predecessor, Harry Truman, has a lot of military experience. He was the overall commander of Allied forces in Europe in uh, World War II. Uh, this single integrated operational plan uh, is his idea uh, you know, and he feels that if nuclear war were to happen, it would happen so fast that there would be no time for everybody to put their heads together and come up with any kind of a battle plan. Everything has to be sorted out in advance. Uh, nonetheless, uh, some of the tension and the rivalries that existed coming into this will come into play. So uh, General Power has basically laid out his plan for obliterating the Sino-Soviet bloc. And uh, he's taking, I guess you could say, questions from the audience. And I'm just going to dive back into uh, Fred Kaplan's uh, book, The Wizards of Armageddon. Uh, quote, Then General David Shoup, Commandant of the Marine Corps, spoke up. The Marines had virtually no involvement in the nuclear game, so Shoup could take a position as close as possible to an outsider while still sitting on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, the day before, during the first uh, JSTPS briefing, Shoup had been bothered by a graph that showed tens of millions of Chinese being killed by the U.S. attack. He had asked General Power what would happen if the Chinese were not fighting in the war. Do we have any options so that we don't have to hit China, he inquired. Uh, well, uh, yeah, we could do that, Power reluctantly replied, squirming in his front row seat. But 
I hope nobody thinks of it, because it would really screw up the plan. End quote. At that point, uh, Shoop is going to get up, he's going to make a little bit of a scene, and he's going to say back to power, uh, Sir, any plan that kills millions of Chinese when it isn't even their war is not a good plan. This is not the American way. Uh, And it kind of goes on from there. Uh, So among the people that are sitting in on this presentation is uh, actually the incoming... Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. Remember, this is uh, December, January 1960, 61. Uh, The Eisenhower administration is kind of on its way out. The whole idea behind the PSYOP is, you know, you're going to have a new president coming in, not a ton of military experience. You want to give him a plan and say, like, you know, here are the keys. You know, don't screw this one up. The idea of having one plan you know, it makes it hard to screw up. Um, also, if you don't have a ton of variations in strategy, it's an easier decision to make. And if you make the only real option for a nuclear war to be just this giant assault, you know, it's 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 huge. It makes the bar really high. You know, you're not going to sort of slide into nuclear war if you're going to go in. You got to go in all the way. Uh, it, it, there is a logic to that. You know, you have to admit. Uh, let's pick up from uh, Kaplan again. Quote: Not the least appalling detail of PSYOP 62 was the virtual obliteration of the tiny country of Albania, even though it had dramatically disassociated itself from the policies of the USSR simply because within its borders sat a huge Soviet air defense radar, which according to the PSYOP had to be taken out with high assurance. As Power was leading McNamara and his entourage outside the briefing room, after he finished the presentation, he smiled at McNamara with a mock straight face. Well, Mr. Secretary, I hope you don't have any friends or relations in Albania because we're just going to have to wipe it out. End quote. So that begs the question, how did it come to this? How could anyone think that this level of overkill was at all justified? How could any rational person believe this type of wholesale carnage to be necessary for national survival? Next time we'll learn how the United States went from a stockpile of just two cumbersome fission bombs that had little or no chance of halting the inexorable Soviet advance into a prostrate post-war Western Europe to what can best be called a nuclear hyperpower with a nuclear arsenal 10 times larger than its nearest rival. It's the birth of the nuclear age, next time on Savage Continent. (laughs) 